I want to begin this morning by giving you a word, and then I want you to think about, you don't have to say, it could be dangerous, but I want you to think about the first thing that comes to your mind, all right? Ready? Here's the word. Deacon. Now, I obviously don't know what you're thinking, but there is a good chance that some, or maybe many of you this morning, are thinking about the common stereotypes of deacons that exist in the church. Maybe when you hear the word deacon, you think of a bunch of grumpy old men. (laughs) Maybe it was the church you grew up in, or maybe it was a grandparent's church that you used to visit. But when you think of deacons, you think of those old deacons who were always out to make sure that, that no one anywhere at any time had any fun. And that was what you think of when you think of a deacon. Maybe when you think of deacons, you think of a governing board. Maybe of kind of the combination Supreme Court, school board, and Congress all rolled into one. The group that rules over the church and the decisions made by it. Or if you come from maybe a Baptist background, it's possible this was the governing structure of your church. The deacons are kind of the leaders and the the rulers of the church. Or maybe when you think of deacons, you think of something far less structured and far less organized. Maybe you merely think of just dedicated attenders. Perhaps you're experience with the church has shown that deacons are simply the people who do what everyone else doesn't want to do. They're the people that everyone knows will get the job done, will do the work, kind of like, well, you've been here a while and you do a lot and you serve and you're really gifted, so let's just make you a deacon. That's what you think of when you think of deacons. Well, according to scripture, deacons aren't primarily any of those things. And in the case of grumpy or governing, they shouldn't be either of those things. In fact, the Bible shows us that deacons are God's gifts to a local church. The deacons serve. The deacons bless the men and women and young people who make up the church. And so what we want to do this morning is understand who deacons are, what deacons are, do and why deacons are important. And to do that, we're going to spend a lot of time here in the book of Acts. Now, you've likely noticed this morning that we're not in the gospel of Luke this morning. Lord willing, we'll be back to Luke next week, and we're going to, Lord willing, follow Luke all the way to the end of Luke, which will take us to Christmas Sunday, December 24th. But this morning, I want us to to kind of focus on deacons, and that's because over the next couple of months, we're going to be rolling out an upgraded and we believe more effective way of identifying potential deacons and equipping deacons and supporting deacons and blessing the church through our deacons. Maybe we could call this kind of a diaconate 2.0. We currently have deacons. The deacons serve well, they do a fantastic job, but we want to kind of augment what they do. And so we think it's important to take some time this morning to step away from our series through Luke to kind of clarify and understand how deacons are blessings to the church, to understand who they are and what they do and why they are important. 
And so, since we're parachuting in to a new book, the book of Acts this morning, some of you were here back in 2013, 14 through 2016 when we worked our way through the book of Acts. But for those of you who weren't, or for those who don't remember that long ago, let me just give a few things, a few bits of information, a bit, bit of intel about Luke. First, the book of Acts. The book of Acts, like the book of Luke, was written by Luke. So we've been in Luke. He also wrote Acts. And so you could think of this book of Acts as kind of Luke part two. In the book of Luke, his purpose in writing is to give us certainty of the things that we have been taught, to show that Jesus is the Christ. And so he's primarily concerned with Jesus's ministry and his teaching and his and his work dying and rising from the dead. Then when we move over to Luke part two, which is called Acts, we're primarily concerned with now how Jesus is working in the world through his followers. So it's not primarily Jesus's work through his physical, earthly, incarnate body, but now how Jesus is working through his body, the church. And so here, where we're picking up in Acts chapter 6, Jesus has already returned to the Father, the apostles are already preaching, the Holy Spirit is working, and the church is growing. But as we can see in our text, even here in verse 1 of chapter 6, this rapid growth of the church has brought with it some unexpected problems. Let's look at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now the context here is important because church growth has brought with it a problem. And what was the problem? Well, the problem was that the Hellenists started complaining because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In the, in the distribution of resources, of bread, of food. Now, we should ask ourselves, okay, who are the Hellenists anyway? Well, the Hellenists were Jews. They were Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews who lived outside Palestine. So they were Jews who lived kind of scattered all throughout the Greek world. This meant that their primary language wasn't Hebrew or Aramaic, like many of the Jews of Palestine, but their primary language was Greek. In fact, they used a different translation of the Bible. Instead of using the Hebrew and the Aramaic, they used the Greek. It's called the Septuagint translation of Scripture. And these Jews then that were in Palestine, many of them who spoke Aramaic and spoke Hebrew, looked down on the Hellenistic Jews and they almost thought of them as kind of half-Jews. Well, you're Jewish, but you don't really know the language, and you're not really familiar with all the customs, and you live in these far-flung parts of the empire, and so you're not really as true Jew as we are. And so there developed some friction between these two groups. And this was an issue that Satan could have used to destroy the church. I mean, he had already attacked the church through persecution in chapter 3 and 4 of Acts. In chapter 5, he tried to fracture the church by bringing into it the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. And neither plan worked, and instead the church continued to grow. But now there is this threat of disunity. 
The complaint here in Acts 6 is that the widows, these Hellenistic widows, were left out from receiving the physical aid or they weren't receiving a fair amount. Either way, the complaint is that this specific group of widows are not having their needs met. And you need to remember, this is the time before Social Security. This is before welfare. This is before 401ks. And in fact, in the New Testament, the church was to care for the the widows that were a part of the church. In fact, Paul gives very specific instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about how they are to keep this role or this list of widows and who's to be on the list and who's not to be on the list and what they're to do for those who are on the list. The church was to take seriously the responsibility to care for the widows. Even as James chapter 1 would tell us pure religion is caring for orphans and widows. So how did the the apostles respond? The apostles could have said, well, that's not true. They could have overlooked it. They could have said, quit your complaining. Like, can't you see the church is growing? There are all kinds of needs. Go out and find some food yourself. They could have said, okay, we're going to stop what we're doing. We're going to give all of our time and attention to caring for these physical needs. We're going to make sure that you have the bread, the food, the, the physical supplies that you need. But look at what the apostles do in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They gathered together the rest of the disciples. And they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's interesting that they say it's not right. Like the issue for the apostles here is not primarily pragmatic. It wasn't a question of how can we get the needs met the quickest or the easiest or the cheapest. The primary consideration is what is right. And that's such a good reminder for us who live even 2,000 years later. It's a reminder that whether we're talking about the structure and the function of the church or we're talking about our individual lives lived out every single day as believers, the primary issue of importance is what is right? What has God said? In fact, what is right comes long before what works best or what have we done before or what do we want or what would be easiest? I mean, it would have been easier, wouldn't it, to give up the ministry of prayer and preaching to serve tables. In fact, they may have been more honored in the, in the eyes of the people around them. Like in my background, to some degree, growing up as a kid in the church and just observing the things that were really esteemed in the lives of, of our pastors oftentimes... Or the fact that he can handle a drill really well on the church workday. Or we don't have to call in someone to get things fixed. We're not necessarily as concerned if, uh, if he's feeding us from the word or able to preach or able to counsel or able to teach. What we're primarily concerned with is and he's a really hard worker with his hands. And those are great things and those can be assets to ministry. 
And in fact, the apostles could have been more honored in the eyes of the people, at least initially, for giving up preaching the word to to serve and meet these tangible needs, but they recognized that would not have been right. There are things in the church and in our lives as Christians that seem counterintuitive, but the common refrain for us as Christians ought to be, what has God said? What's right? To be clear, I think the apostles saw two options in front of them. They could continue preaching the word of God, which would mean they would have less time to personally meet the physical needs of the people, or they could give themselves to meeting the physical needs of the people, which would mean giving up much of their pulpit ministry, their counseling ministry, their ministry of the word, their prayer. And the apostles, I think we see, believe based on these verses in Acts 6, That the benefit of the widows receiving physical help was not worth neglecting the preaching of the word. Because it wasn't important for the widows to receive tangible provisions, it was. It was really important for them to receive tangible provisions, as we'll see. But they recognized the central purpose, the central point, the central mission and priority of the gathering of God's people, of the church, is the ministry of the word and prayer. However, that that didn't mean that the tangible physical needs of the church members were unimportant. Not at all. Look at the solution the apostles come up with here in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, they say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, right? We just pause right there. We could camp out on that for a few moments. Like what they did pleased the whole gathering, right? The leadership said, here's what we're going to do. And every person unanimously was like, that's a fantastic idea, right? It's only happened here and at CCF. (laughs) And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Meeting the physical needs of the church is important. Again, notice the apostles do not say, you know, it's, it's not really a big deal. Find something else to worry about. Or your physical needs aren't eternal, and therefore they're not important. Instead, they take this need seriously. And so seriously that they gather the church together and they explain that what they're going to do is they're going to continue on preaching the word and praying and giving themselves to to word-based ministry. But then the church should select another group from among themselves and that group will be primarily focused on physical and tangible needs of the church. And the whole gathering said, yes, this is a good idea. And after selecting this group, they prayed and they laid their hands on them and they commissioned them to the work. And I just think verse 7 is, a, is an outflow, is a testimony to the faithfulness of, of this early church to give themselves both to preaching and prayer and to give themselves to meeting the physical, tangible needs of the flock. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. That means not only did the word of God go out, but that's also Luke's way of saying people became obedient to the word. 
the, the kingdom expanded. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And you wonder if perhaps some of these priests were observing and they were watching and they were used to a system whereby the leaders in the church would give themselves to teaching and give themselves to prayer. And now all of a sudden they're reminded of the significance of the tangible, physical needs of the church. And as they see that these widows are having their needs met, it's testifying to the authenticity of the message proclaimed by the apostles. Saying we we believe what they say because we can see what they do. And the church grew. The church grew because they heard the word of God proclaimed. The church grew because they saw Christian love in action. And when you think about it, this is how Jesus ministered, isn't it? He perfectly fulfilled his mission while on earth to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel and to pray and to call people to repentance and to call people to turn away from sin and to trust in him. And at the very same time, he frequently ministered to the tangible needs of the people. And so within our local church, this is one of our responsibilities to care for one another to strive to help one another, not only related to spiritual and relational and eternal needs, but also tangible and physical needs as well. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes, if a brother or sister, another believer, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Answer, it's no good. So let's stop here and let's pause because what I want to do is take what we see here in Acts chapter 6 and I want to apply it as a foundation for the work of deacons in the church. Before we do that, let me just give a word of caution. A word of caution is this. Acts chapter 6 is not specifically about the office of deacon in the local church. Later on, as the New Testament unfolds, we read about the specifics of this position or this office of deacon. This is before that time. So what we see in Acts chapter 6 is helpful because I think it highlights the contrast between elders and deacons and kind of the work that they're given to do. And this text is important because I think it shows us the mission or the focus or the goals both of elders who give themselves to preaching and teaching and counseling and discipling the word and prayer and deacons who give themselves to meeting the tangible, physical, temporal sometimes needs of the church. So with that, let's return to our three questions we asked earlier, which are who are deacons? or who deacons are, what deacons do, and why deacons are important. First of all, who deacons are, and I realize grammatically that doesn't make sense at all, but it just seemed to flow who deacons are, what deacons do, and why deacons are important. So just take it together. It sounds better. But first, who deacons are? We can partially answer the question, who deacons are, by what we see in our text this morning. Deacons are 
servants. In fact, the Greek word diakonos means servant or to serve. It's the person who takes your order and brings you your food to your table over lunch. They're deaconing, they're serving. Deacons serve others by meeting the needs of the church. Further, as we seek to try to understand who deacons are, it's helpful to know that Paul actually gives qualifications later on in the New Testament. And when the office of deacon is established, he gives qualifications for those who aspire to serve as deacons. He writes in 1 Timothy 3, in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. A couple of things to note here. Notice, first of all, that the biblical qualifications for deacons are not based on skill, but based on moral character and godliness. This is a reminder that just as it should be for elder candidates, deacon candidates should first and foremost be godly. I think another important note to make that in the New Testament, especially when we see the office of deacon established, we see examples of both men and women serving as deacons. For example, in Romans chapter 16, we read about a faithful woman named Phoebe. She was said to be a faithful diakonos, deacon in the church. Now, we could read that to mean simply she served or she was actually officially a deacon But I think when we add to it another piece of evidence, even from our text here in 1 Timothy 3, we can see that perhaps she, in fact, was in this office of deacon. So in this section of scripture we looked at in 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes and says, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Now, in your Bible, you may have a translation note. It might say, the women with a note at the bottom that says, or wives, or you might have it say in your Bible, the wives, and at the bottom you have a note that says, or the women, because the Greek is really ambiguous there. It could be translated either way. Either we're talking about qualifications for the wives of deacons, or we're talking about qualifications for women who serve as deacons. And I think there's a, a few pieces of evidence that that tend to tip us in the direction of saying that what we're talking about here is women who are serving as deacons. The first, as we've seen, is the example of women serving as deacons in the New Testament. I just gave you one in Phoebe, Romans chapter 16. The other piece of evidence is nowhere, as Paul is giving qualifications for elders and giving qualifications for deacons, nowhere does he give qualifications for elders' wives. Which would seem really strange that he would give qualifications for deacons' wives when elders essentially do a work that is even more central to the mission of the church. They're providing the primary leadership and shepherding and pastoral care. They're the pastors of the church. So for him to not include qualifications there, but to include qualifications for 
for deacons, wives, seems strange. And then, fourthly, there is no feminine form of deacon or diakonos, which I think lends itself to say why Paul would not just refer to women as deaconesses, because in the Greek there is no word for deaconesses. Deacon has no feminine form. Now we could say more, you get the point. The point is this, the church is blessed and the church benefits when godly women and godly men serve. When godly women join with godly men to deacon, to serve in the local church. This is why here at CCF we have both male deacons and female deacons. And we know that there are churches who disagree on that, churches where women are prohibited from serving as deacons. Often it's because they have a different understanding of deacons. In some churches, deacons essentially do what we here at CCF would say elders do. Or what we would even argue the Bible says elders are supposed to do. So in some churches, it's the deacons who are the primary shepherds, primary leaders in the church. We would say that we don't see that in the New Testament as the model that we're given. However, we would not say that those churches are outside the bounds of orthodoxy. But if a church does operate like that, we can see why the office of deacon would be reserved for men. But we believe the Bible lays out two offices in the local church. Elders who shepherd the flock, who preach and teach and lead. And it's, a, and it's an office the Bible reserves for godly men. But this second office is that of deacon. And this second office is incredibly important. And it's an office to which men and women should be encouraged to enter. And we are blessed when both men and women enter into this office and shepherd the or serve the flock as deacons. That's who deacons are. Secondly, though, what do deacons do? We can see here from our text that meeting the physical and tangible needs of the church is important. That's what deacons are primarily concerned with. Deacons serve to, one, meet the specific needs of the church so that, two, the elders are free to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's so clear here in Acts chapter 6. We also see how that plays out throughout the remainder of Acts as the New Testament church is growing. And we see examples of local churches and the way deacons are coming alongside elders to serve together, meeting the tangible physical needs and freeing the elders to be able to care for prayer and the ministry of the word. As we saw, I think Paul clarifies these qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the purpose is to meet tangible needs. And again, the qualifications relate to character and godliness. In fact, the only difference in qualifications in the Bible between an elder and a deacon, there's only one, and it's the ability to teach. An elder should have the ability to teach, to handle the word, some sort of public venue. It shows us then that deacons are not JV elders. They're not like elder wannabes or elder training program, right? Deacons are incredibly important. Deacons serve the church in incredibly important and profound ways. They're another part of the body without which we were hurt and were hindered. One of our CCF members wrote this, while deacons 
in Acts 6 provide food for widows, the New Testament indicates that the deacon's role is not limited to this task. Rather, deacons seek to meet any needs that arise within the church. At CCF, deacons can be found meeting the needs in kidmen and student ministry. They usher on Sunday mornings and provide care through visiting members in the hospital. They provide meals and financial provision to the needy within the church. They help us in, in music on Sunday morning. They, pra- they pass the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. They serve behind the scenes by integrating new members into the body of the church. They serve through cleaning the building, providing administration. They serve beyond the walls of our church through local outreach. Like Where there is a need, we should find godly men and women serving as deacons in our local church. And if we don't find them, we should hope to soon find them serving in those ways. This brings us to one final question this morning. And that is why are deacons important? And hopefully by now you even, you're even able to answer that question. Why are deacons important? So here's a question. Can a church be biblically defined as a church? Can they actually biblically be a church if they don't have deacons? The answer is yes. It can be. We can have brothers and sisters who self-consciously commit themselves, saved men and women self-consciously committing themselves to gather together, to sit under the word, to pray together, to, to disciple one another, to counsel one another, to share the gospel together, to be equipped together, to be about the work of the Lord. And a church can be a faithful church and yet not have the office of deacons. However, We believe the church won't experience the kind of health and unity and missional joy it could have if it isn't served by faithful men and women who deacon. Because deacons are important, as we said. They help promote order within the church and dependability and protection against needs going unmet. In our church, we are served by hundreds of men and women. Lots of you serve already. So many of you are involved in all kinds of ways of service, and we are incredibly grateful. Thank you. Thank you for the way you serve, for the way you arrive early on some Sundays, for the way you you create lesson plans, for the ways you you help out in safety and security in the parking lot, and you serve throughout the week behind the scenes. Thank you for that, for hosting small groups and leading and teaching. And so why should we even bother with the term deacon? Why not just continue with a few largely unrecognized deacons and lots of servants who serve without the title of deacon? Like why, why even bother messing with the title and the qualifications and, and thinking through all of that? Why not just continue to have lots of people serving? One of the reasons we want to expand the deacon ministry and office is so that the ministry roles that you all engage in can be easily attached to the qualifications in Scripture. In other words, we want to use Bible words for Bible actions so that when we read about deacons in the Bible, we can immediately think of this person, of this person, of this person, that we know in the life of our local church who's doing that very same work. We don't want that to be only reserved for elders so that when you read about elders, say in Acts chapter 20, for example, and you think about the elders of this church, we want you to also be able to do that for deacons. We want that clarity. We want you to be able to look 
at a member who, who serves as a deacon and connect their role with the qualifications of Scripture. We want you to look at them and to be able to know what you should expect from their care. And we want you to be able to look at them and know how to keep them accountable as we mutually serve one another. Another reason we want to expand our deacon ministry is because as our church has grown, our needs obviously have grown as well. We can always use more hands in the work. We have faithful elders and we currently have faithful deacons, but we could use a whole lot more, really of both, but especially of deacons. So this afternoon, we're going to be emailing you an overview of our proposed diaconate kind of 2.0 for you to look at. And then next month, we're going to be having a deacon information class. It's going to run on two consecutive Sunday mornings during both the 9 a.m. and the 1045 hour. You're going to hear more information about that starting next week. But we would encourage you, if you're considering being a deacon, if you have a desire to serve as a deacon, if you're just curious, or if something I've said this morning brings up some questions or some pushback, you're like, I don't know, what about? I would encourage you to take part in those classes, to attend those classes. It's just one week. We've got two options, date time and two options time-wise for you to be able to, to be and to learn and to ask questions and to hear more. And then, Lord willing, in January, before our next member meeting, we'll send out even more information about kind of what we're thinking and specific information. But the goal in all of this is that our triune God would be glorified as we seek as a local church to be faithful. One of the things Pastor Rick mentioned in his prayer was that we want to be faithful as a church. We want to always be asking, okay, what does the Bible say we ought to be and do look like and be structured as, as a local church? How would he be calling us and patterning us to live and to operate together? And then we want to align our church the very best we can with everything within us to what God has spoken and what God's word clearly teaches. And we believe that for a long time now, there's been a need for kind of revamp diaconate ministry, not because our current deacons aren't serving well, they're so faithful serving so well. We want to bring alongside them other deacons who will serve in the ministry, who will shepherd together through physical, tangible needs, that God would be glorified, that needs would be met, that you would find more and greater delight in the Lord through your local church, not just through the teaching and the preaching and the musical worship and the discipleship and the counseling and the small groups, but also as tangible physical needs are being addressed in your life and the, the lives of those around you. And the Lord is going to use you to meet those needs sometimes, and the Lord's going to use you to be the recipient of those needs sometimes. We pray that in all of this, God, our triune God, would be glorified, that we would reflect his care for his people, and that we would advance his purposes. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father God, this morning we thank you that you have not left us without instruction. Father, we're so grateful that the church is not a blank slate on which the creative geniuses of elders or pastors or visionaries can, can be marked, but Father, rather you have given us 
your design, your purposes, your plan for how you want your church to be structured and cared for and led and served. So I pray that you would help us in these weeks ahead as we seek to roll out more information about kind of upgrading and revamping our diaconate ministry here at CCF. Father, we recognize that at the end of the day, it's ultimately not about structures. It's about people. It's about needs being met. It's about the gospel being communicated, not only with our words, but with our hands. So, Father, I pray that you would help us in that. We desire to be obedient. We desire to be faithful. And I pray that as we, as we seek to follow more faithfully along these lines of our deacon ministry, that you would be praised and glorified from among your people. That just like we see here in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that your word might continue to increase. That the disciples might, here even in Centerville and in Dayton and beyond, might multiply greatly for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.